Hi, this is Paul, and I have a really special guest today, Martin Shaw. And before I met Martin, just briefly at ARC, we didn't have much of a chance to talk. A bunch of people were telling me, oh, you have to talk to Martin Shaw. You have to talk to Martin Shaw. And then your name started coming up sort of in the Paul King's North space. I know Mark did an event with you and Jonathan Peugeot and Paul in Ireland. And so, but I hadn't, I hadn't really sort of caught up to you. And then in ARC, we bumped into each other. And and Martin basically said, "Oh, I want to talk to you too." And so this is this is finally a chance for us to to get to know each other a little bit. Yeah. So, Martin, thank you so much for for taking the time. And as as you said to me, and obviously we can fill it all in. The, your conversations with Justin Brierly, uh, so Justin sort of did my job for me in terms of getting to know your story and getting to know where you're coming from. But I, I can't assume that everybody has had that opportunity, even though Justin's platform is a lot bigger than mine. So why don't you begin with a, a little bit about yourself? And, and and I was really surprised that you know anything about me. So you might throw that in there, too. <laughs> I will. Thank you for having me, Paul. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and a shout out before I begin to everyone at our friends at Grail Country as well. Yes. And yes. And the crew. So love to them. So. As the son of a preacher and as the brother of a preacher, I that's how I know you. That's how I know, especially those wonderful podcasts you do when you're kind of nutting out a sermon several days before delivery. That is a world. That's not my first rodeo when it comes to preaching. I, I've grown up in a preacher's house, although I have definitely been serving at the altar of the unknown God for the last 50 years, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I know you through that. And I had no idea any of this was going on. The last three or four years have been a revelation in terms of Christianity and quite what's out there, the thinking uh, and everything that's happening with Peugeot and my friend Paul and that wider world. So that's how I came across you. Um, so I'm this sort of endangered species, a mythologist. There's just a few of us still fluttering around. What, what is a mythologist? Yeah. Well, it's it's a thing with a it's a thing with a piece of paper attached to it. You know, it's a doctorate thing. Okay. Uh, so I was a professor at Stanford, uh, and I got courses going there. I've taught on and off there over the last decade. Really, it's it's a bit preacherly in the sense that you're working with ancient texts and you're able to comb through them and provide a level of exegesis, which is, which makes sense to modern people. And that could be from a very felt experience of the Odyssey through to somebody talking about the, you know, the cultural kind of affectation of Mediterranean paganism. You've got to be able to work on all those different levels. And so as I'm talking to you, I mean, I grew up watching my dad do something like that, but within the compression of a sermon, you know, yep. I'm lucky. I have a school with 70 students. I get, a, I start teaching at nine o'clock in the morning. Don't finish till one in the afternoon. I get four hours to take my imagination for a walk so I actually admire the discipline of the sermon for its compactness. Yeah. I think of I think of it as the difference between do you remember singles, vinyl? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You you a good sermon is like you really got me by the kinks, like everything has to happen now. 
Whereas ah. I'm off doing tales of topographic ocean, you know, with I get a chance to expand, but that doesn't mean that I don't admire the art form of preaching. I actually gave a sermon the other day. It was not great. Uh, so I came out of it with renewed, scuffed admiration. So that's what a mythologist is. But what's important is that I'm also what you would call a sort of stand and deliver oral storyteller in a very ancient fashion in that I can tell stories that last for three to five days. And I will have, I will tell, say, the Odyssey or I'll tell the Epic of Parsifal and people will come on a Friday and we won't leave till a Sunday or a Wednesday. Mm. And this is so that's not a retreat. You have the yeah. sermon and there's the retreat. There you go. <laughs> the and I'm a I'm a you know, someone said to me once, they said, You don't need retreats, you lead attacks. You know, so, <laughs> so, so it's this bumble like that. But but interestingly, um, so this oral storytelling thing is interesting to me because there's a whole wave on YouTube of folks that are interested in myth, a lot of them Christian. But one of the things that is important for me is to say, make sure that what you're doing is not all theory. You've got to have the encounter with the story. Don't always be talking about the encounter. Have the bloody thing. Uh, so half the time I'm up there. I taught Canada last year. I taught Ireland last year. I'm just up there in front of audiences telling stories. But that's not going to make a mythologist. A mythologist has to understand all of these other levels and be able to bring the volume up and down and, you know, work with the pigment of the thing. Boy, this opens up so many interesting things for me because now again, you, you're part of this new reawakening in Christianity of See, we we're we're lacking language it's i don't want to say postmodern because that frames it in a certain way but it's 20 years ago when you have all these waves and church planting and church renewal and all that stuff they called they talked about the ancient modern and and what you're sort of in there is sort of the the wild the rewilding of the rewilding of the story, the rewilding of the life. And what I what I sort of want to pick your brain on is in some ways the rewilding of the church. Because, you know, I'm I'm curious. So you've taught at Stanford, obviously Stanford's in here in Northern California. So you have a sense of the, you know, the region that I work in and live in. Why what what is why was Stanford interested in mythologists? Well, I think I think the word storytelling became sexy about a decade ago, honestly. Yeah. And I think there was a budget for it. And uh, so I think what happened was Stanford, and particularly uh, there was a guy there, a wonderful man called Jonah Willingas, they sort of turned their attention to say, well, we don't just want storytelling in its broadest Netflix sense. Is there anybody left that can find a way in, in that old sort of bardic tradition? Is there someone that can just stand there with no green screen 
and and start to talk and do the thing. And so that's how that began. I mean, it was interesting. I, I have to get screened by the FBI every time I turn up at Stanford because they don't like the fact that they'd have to bring in a Brit. They said, well, there's got to be an American that can do this job. Why would, why would it be? So there's always this push and pull. But that's really the thing was suddenly storytelling as a word became energized. And that was what happened. So I don't know how. So part of what's happened in this strange little space is, of course, Jonathan Peugeot and the Orthodox side. But another piece of this has been John Verveke in the cognitive science side. And part of, you know, where, say, Jonathan Peugeot and I sort of meet each other is the thesis of the basically in some ways we have seen the the limits of the enlightenment of that particular in the gilchrist talks about the emissary and the um and the master that kind of emissary brain emissary mind thinking that we okay a story is and they say theorize us dissect a story and into its theory but i think eventually we began to see that um they you know it was sort of like at the beginning of the modern period when they decided well we're going to find the soul so we're going to put someone on a super precise scale and wait till they die and try to find you know when the soul leaves the body will will measure and find out what a soul weighs and of course then they were tremendously frustrated and of course Descartes was pondering well what's the organ in the brain that sort of interfaces and you know and that that continues on with let's say Elon Musk who wants to sort of interface the brain so we're getting to the we're getting to the end of imagining that we can take all of reality and put it in a box and then once we have in a box sort of chop it up and break it down into its constitutive parts and and we're beginning to see that even in something as common and ubiquitous as story that there's there's something in it that is above us and we can't contain it, wield it, or capture it. And it's fascinating to me that at least at some level, even a an organization like Stanford University, which is sort of at the top of the, you know, one of the top universities, they they had to admit that. But I would imagine that at some point they were probably a little uneasy about it. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, the reports for the students' mental health were so overwhelmingly positive that they said, actually, you should just come here forever. Uh, and there are just other things I have to do in my life. But uh, that was the reality. It was just enormously nourishing. Uh, can you imagine the Petri dish of being at Stanford where everybody's exceptional, everybody's brilliant, no one gets a B, Everybody gets an A. How do you function in that? And actually to be to be held in the ferment of a story for eight weeks proved just so good for the kids. Mm. Just so good for the kids. That was what I think probably was the Willy Wonka golden ticket, you know. Yeah. Now, I, I want to dig into your story a little bit because in my experience, there's... I mean, there's there's always there's always a part of us that is formation 
And then there's always a part of us that is just gift and you can't account for it. And so you talked with Justin about the fact that you grew up in a preacher's home, uh, yeah. Reformed Baptist sort of. Um... Well, I would, I mean, here's an interesting thing. My brother is a New Frontiers pastor. Oh, okay. So that should chime with you yes. going back to ARC conference. Yes. So my brother is New Frontiers. My mum and dad go to an Anglican church, but they're not really Anglican, not in their hearts. They're, I'd say they're sort of, probably Baptist with a healthy splash of nonconformist, to be honest, okay. where I can still hear the Plymouth Brethren singing quietly in the background. So, so it, it's all, and my sister is a charismatic Catholic, oh. which I didn't even know existed until yeah. recently. There's this yeah. incredibly vibrant charismatic Catholic thing going on. So it's a very mixed bag. We all met for Christmas. There was 30 of us. Uh, and it's amazing, you know, it's amazing what lives under the tent of the word Christian. Yeah. yeah. I, I think part of what, part of the function of the church, probably in, in, a, in a space that modernity really gripped was sort of an appendix. You know, for a long time, people thought the appendix was, was this vestigial organ, you can remove it, it won't be missed. And then later, as there's more knowledge about gut biology, people began to postulate. I don't know. There's there's doctors out there that are going to correct me in the comments section, which is totally fine. But but someplace to sort of um, keep uh, keep wild bacteria alive because your gut's going to need it. And and in some ways, I see the church as as having that function. In many different cultures, so in, in the communist world where communism is try, trying to eradicate the church, you know, you just can't kill all of those religious types. They're they're weird. They're wild. You know, you could sit down with them and say, use your your logic chopping and say, well, this doesn't really fit. And people look at you and they just don't care. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and so I, I have a sense that um Probably part of you, I mean, you, you you laid your story out nicely for for Justin, how um sounds like you had great parents, great family life, as I did too. Um, I I never left the faith. I think partly because when I listen to you talk about your family life and your parents, I very much recognize my father. Um, CS big CS Lewis fan, um you know, fit very well into the Christian Reformed Church, yet at the same time always had a sense of, well, our little denomination is not, we are not the only animal in God's in God's kingdom. And mm -hmm. so an openness to to many of the other traditions, not not very closed, but um so why why do you think as a why do you think you, as opposed to some of your siblings, sort of didn't at least initially it didn't take for you great question um so i we go back to the early 1970s i suppose i spent 10 years in a baptist church a very well-known baptist church in this country called upton vale great preachers peter barber and others and then my dad is briefly at spurgeon's theological college does not take to it. We move and then we end up in the free church movement. And then the thing that was probably most arresting for me, which was the charismatic movement, 
it's easy to cock a snoot at it, but for those that were there, it was hair raising. Yeah. It was yeah. absolutely hair raising. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of Orthodox folk are suspicious at best about the uh, the charismatic movement, but I've seen extraordinary things that are absolutely inexplainable. So what that did was even though theoretically my faith was falling away in tatters by the time I was 17, I did leave Christianity with a strong impression uh, that there was something going on. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't leave it absolutely disillusioned, but it just was not striking my contemplative mystical nature, which I really, I'm afraid I'm one of those signs and wonders guys. I just yeah. am. Yeah. And so I, I, I had no idea about orthodoxy. I had no idea about the saints, really. Uh, I had no idea of a sort of patristic or, or desert father or mother or whatever you want to call it tradition. And so it just wasn't enough meat on the bone. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my first, my first thing in ministry out of seminary was foreign missions. And I was in the Dominican Republic, mostly working with Haitians. And I had, and then also in college, I was sort of part of a Christian reform, but church with a charismatic edge. And yeah, it's, it's so funny when I talk to sort of hard bitten um, rationalist naturalist types, and they're just sort of facilely dismissing. Um, I, I, I listen to them and I just smile because I think you really have to get out more. I mean, yeah, the yeah. world, the world is a crazy place. <laughs> and if you sort of stick to your little place and sort of dismiss everything out of hand, I think, oh, you're the open-minded ones. Really? I'm not so sure. Um, another thing that struck me in terms of listening to your story, and I want to be careful about this, and you can completely dodge this question if you will. But you mentioned, and I, I I don't want to get into I don't want to get into anybody else's story. Um, so I want to re really be careful because part of talking on YouTube is okay, you know, respecting others and their privacy, even though we're sort of giving up some of our own. Um, you, you talked about an early divorce because one of the oh, yeah. things when I listen to your story, I think, uh, yeah, this would this would never. This would never fit into I'm a I've I'm in a I'm in a marriage of 36 years. I'm a father of five. Um, so you know, in, in that sense, there's a wildness. I remember my wife and I in marriage counseling once, and the 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 marriage counselor said, you know, you two are not living the 21st, you're not two are not living in the 21st century. You have five children. And it's like, yeah, financially, I totally understand that. But um, but then I listened to you, you know, spending you know, a hundred days out in the wilderness. And I'm just thinking, yeah, um, couldn't do this as a married man. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious yeah. about how, because again, one of the things that you see as a pastor, pastors are not therapists. We're sort of like therapists and that we get into people's stories and people do disclosure, but unlike therapists, we don't see people in a tiny little box. We see people in a sense out in the wild and in their family systems. And there are a lot of elements besides, let's say, theory or religion or all of these sort of things we compartmentalize that go into someone's story. And, you know, one of the things that is, I think, dominant in late Protestant modernity was the elevation of the family. And, and that then 
basically put some limits in terms of, okay, um, how wild can you get if you have five little people in tow behind you? And so, you know, listening to your story, I thought, well, this is this is a part of that too. I'm not asking for details or anything like that, but just the fact of singleness, because right now as a culture, singleness is a very big deal, partly because of sort of the breakdown of romance and marriage and people being able to make long-term commitments. Yeah. One of the things we should talk about in a bit, probably not right now, is a little caveat around the word wild, because I can see down the road a bit in my own work, and I can see just how attractive anything is if you put the wild, the wild word on it. Yep. And uh, I'm sort of frantically pressing the brakes a bit. As Rowan Williams says, when you use that word, be careful what you invoke. Be yes. careful. So do understand, as I said earlier on, this is not my first rodeo. Uh, and so I have all sorts of cautions and, and stipulations as I go. But to go back to being a kid, no, I, I am. Uh, I was a wild little romantic who married too young. Uh, there would have been in my life probably what we would now call mental health stuff. But yeah. I didn't I didn't recognize it as such. I had yeah. no I had no no vocabulary for it. Uh, and I did. I mean, for some reason, it is a, it is as if for 50 years, God, God wanted to conceal certain things from me while I learned a different set of languages that I would have I would have learned had I stayed in the church. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, several days before my 50th birthday, he just said, now, now. And I'm living in the trouble of what Christ has brought me. I mean, talk about smashing the temple up in Jerusalem. He smashed up my love life. Yeah. He smashed up my finances. Yeah. He smashed up my friendships. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, and I always knew, I knew enough about the Gospels that that was usually the price tag. Yeah. I still talk to anyone, anyone. You can't curate who he chooses to talk to. But the, again, the price tag of talking to him is what we call in, sh in chivalry, noblesse oblige. I pull you from the dung heap. You're going to dine with princes. You want to be noble. You have to act noble. Suddenly the code, which all these millions of guys getting so tuned into Jordan Peterson, this is the shit yes. that's really going on underneath that. That's the God code. So I was looking for that. And I'm with Augustine. All truth is God's truth. That's where I am. So I was seeing pinpricks of the story all over the place, way out where the buses don't park. But the big story was like the elephant in the room. It was the one story I, I couldn't tell because it was, I don't know, maybe too potent, too affecting, or I simply wasn't ready. Yeah, yeah. I, I so relate to that. You know, I'm a, I'm a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, which is a sort of a moderate Dutch Calvinist breakout group in North America. Um, and, you know, then I go on the internet and I identify as a Calvinist because well, how else am I going to identify as a Christian Reformed Church minister? And then suddenly people, you know, are, I'd start, they, they act like I'm this one thing and then they listen to me and they say, you're not a Calvinist, but what you just said to me is so much at the heart of of my Calvinism, which is God is 
and I, I totally want to get to this wild word because that was another thing on my agenda. God is wild and free. God, I mean, and, and I talk to people sometimes and Christianity has become in certain circles almost this syllogism that, oh, here, here's, you know, you're going to say the sinner's prayer and then you're going to live the Christian life, which means you're going to marry a good wife and this is what's going to happen. And then, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a successful marriage or at least a, a successful enough marriage. And then you're going to have children and your children are going to behave like this. And, and it's this entire program. And if, if you're a pastor long enough and you're paying attention, you begin to say, you begin to have serious doubts about this program. And and, and serious because the whole program is hedged in that, and and God is sort of the guarantor and um and underwriter of this program. And and you just have to begin to say, I, I'm not sure if anybody sort of knocked on his door and got his signature on this because <laughs> he seems to work through God, God will have absolutely no problem saying, I'm gonna put you just just read the Bible, it's all in the Bible. I mean, just look at the story of Moses. You know, first I'm going to put you in Pharaoh's house. All right, so I'm going to give the best education of the world. And then you're going to be a would-be revolutionary and you're going to free the people. And so you're going to kill an Egyptian and somebody, you know, one of your own people is going to rat on you. And you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness tending your father-in-law's sheep. <laughs> Talk about decades to spend. <laughs> and then I'm going to bring you back and say, okay, you know what you wanted to do back then? You get to do it. And it's like, ah, no, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Ah, but you don't really have a choice, Moses. That's that's where you go wrong. That yeah. and, and all of our little facile ways, do you have a choice? Don't you have a choice? Well, it, it, it's, it, you can't just break it down so easily. And when I listen to your conversion story, which maybe you want to talk a little bit about, it's, it's, I, I love the way you told it because in a sense, the Lord comes to you and says, are you willing? And in, in that sense, sometimes he can be, the Lord can be such a gentleman to say, do you really want me? Cause I'll, I'll give, I'll give myself to you. And, and now at least you have a sense of what you're signing on for. Other times he's like, no, you really don't have any question in this. This is just what I'm going to do. Yeah. And, and that's the way he is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, if we go back, so I'm 17. I leave. I leave. I leave the Stanford Free Church. That's the place that I'm going, and I set out on, I suppose, what uh, in Aboriginal culture they call walkabout. I just didn't know it was going to be a 30-year walkabout. Uh, I lived in a tent for four years. Um, this was not with a phone. This was not with a computer. This was nothing. This was still at the end. I'm very much a man of the last century. I'm not, I'm so nostalgic. I'm nostalgic about this cup of tea that I had five minutes ago. I'll never have a cup of tea like the one I just had. So, so back there, as you remember, this yeah. thing called 1990s. Yes. We all functioned and grew without screens. We were not caught in this narcissan gaze. So I just headed out in a kind of, um, in a very biblical way, but not realizing it. And I think I mentioned to you earlier on the image of praying at the altar of the unknown God. Paul's so smart what he does in those moments. I've just been reading the Gospel of Mark with my nephew who's becoming a Franciscan friar. And you read Mark and yeah. Jesus just 
roars through the fucking thing. Excuse yes. my friend. Yes, he yes. Just roars through one end to the other. And another thing. And another thing. And another thing. And another. Heel, heel, heel. Is this working? Do I look like a stick? And on. It's it. How anybody could see this as a contrived bit of writing. You'd be mad to present Mark like that. But what I'm getting at is I went from Mark to the Acts of the Apostle, where you've suddenly got Paul in sort of semi-flattery mode. Yeah, You're clearly wise people. You have poets. However, so let's just, I mean, the genius of Paul in that moment. But what Acts did for me is I realized, oh, that's what I did when I was 17. I mm. signed up for the unknown God. Mm. I signed up for a God that I could not draw with one line. And what I learned from I'd say the unknown God is better than no God. It's better than nothing. It's better than atheism. But I'm worried now that, and Tom Holland is brilliant at this, there is an inevitable move back towards some form of religious expression. But I think what I predict is we're going to enter a kind of unknown God period because actually no one can say this is the way anymore. We're not allowed to say that. And so we're going to have to remain vague and indistinct and romantic, but that's about it. That's as far as will be tolerated. And I trotted along on that helium for a long time. And I, I, I felt led through it and I still feel led through it and I still draw upon it. But my background, as well as the storytelling and mythology, is something called Wilderness Rites of Passage, which is long periods. Lots of Christians do it fasting out in the wild it's like a truncated form of christ's time in the desert hopefully without an appearance of you know the adversary but he'll show up in other ways you can be sure uh and then four years ago for no reason that i can still fathom i elected to go out into an english forest for 101 days i told no one so what that means is I wasn't there the entire time. I'd go up there as a little pilgrimage every day. I'd go up at dusk. I've spent thousands of nights under the stars. As you say, I have had a very different type of life. I've been cooked in a different kind of oven. Um, and on the last night I went up, would have been, it was, it's almost exactly four years ago, almost to the evening. Mm. It was freezing cold. I'm in the forest and I begin to pray. Uh, and it's very, it's very difficult for me to talk about because this kind of thing is. But I was, I was, I, I looked up at the sky, which I very rarely do because in forests you can imagine you're hearing stags and foxes and badgers. You're kind of on the ground. It's a very grounding experience. But somehow, at the end of this hundred and one day experience, which I, I'd loved and was glad that was going to be over. I hadn't been gobbling any visionary vegetables. I'd had a meal. I'd had a cup of tea. I was in an incredibly straightforward frame of mind. I was not, I was not Julian of Norwich at this moment. I was not Hildegard von Bingen. I just wanted it done. And I just said, here I am. If there's anything at the end of this, I need to see or experience. Here I am. Uh, and I look up in the sky and I see a star. There, were, there must have been plenty of stars there. And I see the star is in front of me, is changing colour. And 
And it looks, you're probably familiar with things like the Aurora Borealis, but we're not in England. It's not part of our visual vocabulary. But I saw what looked like a falling star. It seemed to, but it wasn't colored like a normal star. It had these beautiful, beautiful kind of greens and whites and purples in it. And then to my astonishment, the thing really picked up speed to a point where it looked like a kind of the tip of an arrow. And it just landed in the forest about 10 foot away from me, where I usually have a kitchen tent when I'm running retreats, but I don't tell people this. It just landed silently in the ground. Now, there must be, I'm sure, some sort of, uh, you know, scientific explanation for all of that. But that's not what was happening at that moment. Not at that moment. Not when you've made the Temenos like that, that place set apart. Not when you've prayed for 101 days. No. So that rattled me because it was as if something, it reminded me of things that happened in the Old Testament and in the Bible. And then as I got into bed, I danced all night because I was going to do this all night vigil. I get back to my cottage. I'm getting in bed. Uh, and I see in the air, I mean, I I don't live in this kind of visionary reality, Paul, all the time. I'm I'm a father, you know, I'm a dad. I just see in the air in front of me these nine words, inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. You know, and then and then it's gone. Uh, and I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. And believe it or not, I wrestled with it for about 18 months. I, I didn't really tell anybody quite what was happening. I just chewed it. It was lockdown, we recall. Yeah. So I suddenly had all this isolated time, like an alchemical experiment to sit there fermenting in this thing and why did it say genesis and how did something fall out of the sky and what on earth is going on uh and then i began to dream and the dreams became unarguably christian unarguable and i realized that this thing this this christ presence was not out somewhere behind pluto with a pair of wings he was nearer than my own breath and I just, you, at some point, you know, if this is, I, I've seen Jordan Peterson get near this moment. Yeah. I've seen him get near this moment. Yeah. I've seen Matthew Holland get near this. Uh, is that his name? Tom, Tom, Tom forgive me. Yeah. I've seen people get this. Your intelligence can be your greatest. Yeah. It can defeat it. Yeah. It, it. Your thinking can defeat you at these moments. Uh, and luckily enough, I'm not beautiful. Thank God I'm not as smart as they are. <laughs> so i was allowed i just allowed myself to, to to receive and surrender you know i absolutely surrendered but i had a good jacob wrestling with the angel 18 months uh and then i just had to live in the kind of pulling apart of your life yeah. that happens when you say i kind of myself do nothing and and i don't i don't want to speed past that because again, I mean, being a being a pastor is a. I'll tell some of my own story. So I'm a third generation minister. Um, my 
My great-great-grandfather sent his 18-year-old son to America to make way for the family, I think, because he married, they were all Jews, and he married a Dutch girl, and so was put out of the community, so decided that they would head to America and just um, assimilate into the Dutch, the other Dutch immigrants in West Michigan. And so my great-grandfather was a house painter and kind of an artist, uh, painted things. His second son, Hiram, um, his name, the, 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 he should have been named Hyman because uh, that was the Dutch names. It was Hartog Hyman, Hartog Hyman through the generations. But um, yeah, to be named Hyman as a little boy in America probably wouldn't have gone well in school. So um, Hiram, and he, he becomes a Christian Reformed minister and pastors churches kind of out in the Midwest during the Depression and um, people... Uh, he was known as kind of a boring preacher. Um, I have a great story where back in the day, Christian Reformed churches would look for a new preacher and and want to have him come without ever meeting him or hearing him. And so this one church, his last church he ever served out in the East Coast, called him. He went up there, preached a sermon. It was so bad that they sent a seminary intern down to tell him that they were rescinding the call, which isn't really a thing you can do. And my grandfather basically said, well, I'll take that into consideration, went anyway. And, you know, it's just a crazy story, but they they loved him because he was kind of a boring preacher, but he was such a warm, uh, loving pastor that that they eventually just, they, they loved him and he spent six years there. So my father becomes a Christian for a minister and um, winds up in a little racial reconciliation church in Patterson, New Jersey. And that's where I'm, that's where I come into the story. And I'm, you know, I'm like, like very few white families, mostly black families. And so everybody calls me little Rev and it's like, you know, that, that's going to put some differentiation issues into a young person. So I decided last thing I wanted to be was a minister. And, um, but I, you know, I was in college and I wanted to do mathematics and engineering. I wouldn't do anything but this, but I found I really kind of liked theology and and this kind of thing. And I loved going to church and so then I married a woman who really wanted to be a foreign missionary and so became a foreign missionary. And then um, some things happened as a foreign missionary and we really had to come back home and um, and then worked with computers for a while and then just realized, you know, what, what am I doing? So then, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll consider being a local church pastor. And so then... I had two I had two job offers, one as a second staff position in a very lovely church in Chicago, and then another at this church that looked fairly dysfunctional in Northern California. And it was like, oh, that's certainly the one I gotta go to. It had African Americans and Asians, it's this crazy little church. And I go to that church and I come to this church and I discover, gosh, I really love doing this. <laughs> it just run away from it and and you know, God just I, I, I almost get the sense that he listens to us. It's just, it's, it's just listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just waiting for us. And then, you know, then you come back here and then, and then you begin to, you begin to discover that, yeah, God is, this is where I want to get into the wild thing because like, like you say, storytelling became sort of became sexy in, in the, in the upper regions. And I think people couldn't admit it, but intuitively they began to discover that modernity was just too sterile and unbelievable 
and it's kind of a lie that we tell each other in public. So, because, you know, one of the worst things you can probably do for your career is tell the kind of story you just told. Yeah. Because people will begin to say, uh, you know, is he, is he, is he really, is he really all there? Is he really, you know, is, is yeah, he reliable? Yeah. Is he dependable? Cause that's sort of what we signal to each other with modernity. It's like, yep. And, and the thing is that I, I, the church has its own version of this too. And, and whatever sort of segment of the church you're in, even the Pentecostals, which can be fairly wild, you know, they have their own, they have the dogmas always develop because you need dogmas in order to have a cohesive community. But God always is, you just can't, you know, you just, as Jonathan Peugeot says, you know, don't, don't harvest, leave the corners of the field for the gleaners and leave the fringe and don't, don't hem this stuff in too tight because, and, and I, I sort of feel that about the, the wild thing, because I think a lot of people are going to listen to your story and say things like, well, what I, and I see this right now, sort of with a lot of people, well, well, Martin Shaw and Paul Kingsnorth, they've all gone to orthodoxy because orthodoxy is the wild place. So I'm going to go be orthodox. And it's like, you just, when, I mean, God can break in to your, to your sterile cubicle under fluorescent lights. He can break in to your, um, I mean, and that's Paul Kingsnorth. I mean, he was the one that was just living this wild life and it's like, you know, anything but Christian and God's like, no, that's, that's, that's where I'm bringing you. And so now, and, and so you, you can't, None of our models or systems can really contain God. And there's a certain that, that that's deeply frustrating for us because we are such small, rightly fearful creatures, because we know that at any moment, you know, somebody's lack of judgment behind the wheel of a car or some tiny little virus or um, some, you know, mental illness can you know, it can destroy our lives in a moment. And and there's nothing you can do to to forestall any of this. And yet Christians have the audacity to say it isn't just random that that, that the God, a God capable of creating the kind of nature we have sort of been discovering over the last hundred years is also capable of paying close attention and caring about Martin Shaw and is going to, you know, before the, you know, before he is made, you know, work in the stories of multiple generations and, and work in the genetics and work in the biology and work in the ecosystem and work in the, I mean, do work at all of those levels to, to create, to create a servant like Martin Shaw and to have him at a late stage in his life have a redirect and have a story that's going to make well as a mythologist i guess some people are like yeah that's what i come for i don't i don't trust anybody who hasn't had that but again you discover you can't say that either because you find god using people in the button down sterile places there's there's even wildness in the there's even wildness in the cubicle and 
So, you know, to me, listening to your story and seeing how this fits and seeing how you're just you're just one guy who has is either crazy enough or courageous enough to get in front of YouTube and tell this story. There are many, many other people who will never appear on any of these screens. I just sat for one yesterday that will not appear on my channel, but you listen to people and the stories are crazy, but they're true and they're believable and don't live in denial about it. I mean, and if it comes to your story, figure out how to say yes to God instead of no, because you really don't want to fight him. You really don't. So I don't know if any of that, I, 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 don't, I, I hope I didn't bore you or waste your time with any of this. No, no, you know, after 30 years working as a wilderness rites of passage guide, the perennial question always is how does the kind of epiphany I could experience in a forest, what do I do with it in Detroit or Alabama or London, what the fuck do I do with it? Yeah. And so this is, you know, the rubber hits the ground. Now, the thing is, you see, we're all attracted to the prophetic, but you need the pastoral. Yeah. You need, the rubber has to hit the road at some point. Yeah. And that's where the shape for me of orthodoxy comes in. And it's 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 been huge for Paul as well. Um, that's, and that's my concern. I'm, I'm very happy to sort of wear the T-shirt for the wild in a, in a fashion. But as someone that's actually lived out there and done that, most of us to most of us are not meant to be on our own for long periods. Yeah. Most of us are not meant to spend years in a tent. In other words, on the one hand, I could be seen as a bit mad, but on the other hand, I could be heavily invested in, in a sort of very romantic sense. None of this is healthy. None of it you can really grow barley from. It's it's not what I want. Uh, so, you know, growing up in churches with charismatic preachers, seeing that whole game, uh, then being part of, you know, uh, the, the kind of mythological movements that I have, I see the same human patterns go on over and over. And I'm just thinking to myself, how do I, the story that I've just told you, I didn't want to tell anymore. Yeah. Because it's too deep. Yeah. It's it you can you will have felt it as I was telling it. It's not I'm not dishing it out. Yeah. But I felt that I felt that God said to me I gave you 2 years after this experience to 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 ferment in that. It's not yours now. Mm. Not yours. And so that's what's happening to me, but I experience a degree of loss when I tell it. For sure. I experienced loss. Tell, tell me why loss. Because probably because I I have a degree of introversion in me, mm. and so it's not a natural thing to talk about something that cataclysmically powerful. Mm. And I suppose the loss actually is that words do not do it justice. Yeah, they just don't. It's not a neat little narrative, uh, as you've been saying. God is extraordinarily anarchic when he wants uh holy spirit goes where he will that's it that the, the edges of the tent are flapping here we go buckle down um and i the, the god of the christians i've come to realize is a scandal 
He was a scandal. He was he, you know, he he's born with a price tag on his head. He he dies as an outlaw. Then he's out, he's audacious enough to return. I mean, it's not as if we don't have anything to work with as Christians. How could we not be getting the memo that the wildest God of all is the one of the Christians? Yeah. I'm behind that. I'll yeah. talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Why why do you think why do you think at this time God is telling you your story is not yours? Because I think he's showing me as a as a as a sort of narcissistic, self-obsessed middle-aged man that I have to learn the business of being available to other people. I've got to be, I have to give up being a chief which I was in my field. I was a little chief. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got to give that up and be a worker bee for Christ. Mm. Oh, wow. And what you say, available to other people, I mean, that is, again, that's something that you learn in the life of a pastor. And it's it's hard. It's hard on those around you because in, when I think about my father's story and – my father spent first how many years in Patterson just helping people. And as a kid, I would, maybe you can identify this, you know, somebody needed a refrigerator moved. And so I was the boy. So I was the one who always had to go help move other people in Patterson with the church van. And, and, and you do, and, and, and that's a, that's a difficult dance because I think later, later on, my father had to, ask questions about what that availability to others cost others who didn't necessarily share his vocation, which is always sort of a gray area in terms of the family. Cause does the family share the pastor's vocation? That's, that's mm -hmm. such a, that's such a difficult thing, but, um, and, and that is, I love, I, cause I'm preaching the gospel of Mark. And after I'm done with this, I have to work on this week's sermon and I, I'm going to use what you say because I'm I'm in the second chapter of Mark and Jesus is just, you said it better than I ever could have. He's roaring through there. And it's, it's, you know, as a preacher, I want to give my sleepy, aging, tiny congregation a sense of that. While at the same time, you know, I'm I pastor this dying church, which I think 2024 is going to kind of be a defining year for this church, whether it lives or dies or gets transformed or what. I have no idea, but it, it, the same God that roars through the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, you know, meets Elijah on the mountain, and then you know it's a it's a still small voice. And he says to Elijah, which is such, again, I mean, I, the thing, the thing that I, I look at Netflix and I look at all of these things out there and, and they want, people are looking for stories. And I think the most published book in the world, <laughs> all of this is in public domain. Maybe they stay away from these stories because for, for so often these stories have been so poorly treated. Because in, in almost any case, an attempt to rep to re-represent these stories fails compared to the original. Because you know, you've got Elijah who's on Carmel. You know, first, first he shows up at Ahab and says, 
It's not going to rain again until I say so. Bang, disappears for two years until everybody's just dying of drought. And then he shows up and says, meet me and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And of course, the prophets of Baal are doing their dances and doing all of their things. Nothing from the sky. Elijah bows down and says, okay, and whoosh, you know, fire from heaven. Prophets of Baal are slaughtered. Jezebel just says, you know, Elijah, you're a dead man. And he runs like a puppy. In the wilderness and, you know, big displays. Then finally, Elijah, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I've been thinking about Elijah this morning. Uh, I've been thinking about the extraordinary moment where he's booted out again. Because uh, and to wait for the meat that the ravens bring. Yes, yes. I mean that's what I think as Christians. That's where I think we are. Yes. I think we. I, I. I. don't want to unpick the image much more than that because I would weaken it. But I know that as a culture, if if Christianity is to survive as something that feels raw and viable and mysterious. We've got to accept the ravens when they come towards us. Can you imagine how horrifying that would have been for Elijah? The one animal, you know, one of the birds that the Jews are just really not meant to be gobbling on, that eat them, you know, here we come. I think as a culture, we need to get down and gobble. You know, we need to eat some darkness. Well, I think for me, that's part of... You know, so I look at the Jordan Peterson moment, and of course, that's that's what sort of, I mean, I, I was crazy enough to, if you want to know what Life at Living Stones is, you got to watch the Freddie and Paul show. Hardly anybody wants to, people always say, Pastor, if I lived in Sacramento, I'd come to your church. And I'm thinking. <laughs> this, this, if you, people, I want authenticity. I say, well, come to Living Stones. I'll show you authenticity. I'll show you so much authenticity. You're going to go look for a much less authentic church because authenticity is brutally raw. So, you know, I wind up on YouTube talking about, of all things, Jordan Peterson. And lots of people want to talk to me, which is kind of a crazy thing. But then, you know, where was I going with this? Oh, Elijah and the Ravens, you know, God just does this stuff. And so part of, you know, the Jordan Peterson thing is that, oh, and Tom Holland to a degree, it's, it's like this moment, Jordan Peterson and Tom Holland, like the veil is lifted from their eyes and they see the most obvious things, you know, Jordan Peterson that, well, gosh, this can't all be chaos. Look at, Look at how everything works and it's all in these old stories and it's in and 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 he goes up on stage in Toronto and and rambles for two plus hours about the Bible. Meanwhile, almost all the other churches in Toronto are completely empty with people with degrees in the Bible. And here's this psychologist talking about it. And Tom Holland's like, you really can't understand the world without understanding Christ. And you so and so then suddenly, and this is sort of what I felt that arc was. Then there's this moment that it's like, we've rediscovered the secret formula. So now if we get the secret formula, and I think that's part of the reason why, as G.K. Chesterton notes, the church has this cyclical thing that the church sort of, it's the truth. So it kind of rises to the top. And then God sort of says, you know, no, you're, you're going to, you, you got to go, you, you've got to humble yourself. You know, I don't care how many degrees you have to have, you have, 
You have to tell a story that's going to completely embarrass you and you feel absolutely exposed by the dumb thing. And because, again, you know, one of the things that I learned at a very difficult point in my life, and and every saint, I, I, I don't trust anybody that hasn't been broken by God in some way that if when they were young, God had said, I'm going to do this to you. Yeah. <laughs> you would say, you're oh. not a loving God if you're going to do that to me. No, there's an old patristic teaching that says God's not finished with you till he's broken every bone. He's not, you know, who have you met? Who have you met that has not been seriously wounded before anything remotely approaching wisdom comes out of them? Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, so, so then as a preacher, you're supposed to, there was this, there was this, uh, there was a guy, his name was Dante Venegas. He was one of the preachers at the church I was going to in college. He had been a drug dealer in Harlem. Um, they were called, they called him Spanish Danny. My father actually knew him before he was in Madison Square. And he, he winds up in jail and this crazy Dutch reformed guy comes in and shares with him the Heidelberg Catechism of all things. And he reads this and he's like, oh, this is the greatest thing. But, but inside he's a Pentecostal. And so he, he winds up pastoring this church. And and he and one of the things he says he says you know, once I present the gospel to someone and they accept it, I then immediately try to talk them out of it because <laughs> because to, to sort of to sort of promote it as well, this is the answer to all your problems. Yeah, but also <laughs> there's a certain amount of. I, I want to be honest with you about what this is going to cost you. And of course it's right there on the front because you go into a church and it's a Protestant church. Maybe there's a bare one, you know, in all humility, we don't dare do what the Catholics do was which is put the guy up there in front and mm -hmm. say, all right, this is, I, I remember talking to, I remember talking to one guy and I was telling him this and he would say, well then, how on earth are you pastoring a church and why on earth would you imagine trying to get people into it? And it's like, yeah, well, now you understand some of what I feel um, because yeah. he bids you to come and die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. Over Christmas, I have this Substack thing that I write. In, in the month of December, 77,000 people read it. I mean, what on earth? What on earth? I'm not even inflated by it. I'm just baffled. And again, you know, I send it. I send it to the one that does the work. Um, yeah. But it, it, it is a moment. Justin Briley and his new. But he's right. There is something is happening. Yeah. That I have never seen before in my lifetime. No. I absolutely don't understand it. I don't want to pin it down. I have no idea. I have no interest in turning it into an app or franchising it or any of that, but I'm excited to bear witness to it. And can you imagine the commotion in my family now after 50 years? Irony of bloody ironies. The most famous Christian in the family is him. <laughs> Amen. 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 They're such gracious and kind people. It's been nothing but champagne, you know, raised ever since. Bless them. Wow. 
I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the time to land the plane. I don't know if you, I mean, I, I pestered you with my stories and my, and my, and my questions. I don't know if there's, it's so funny because when you tell the story of the, of the arrow, you know, it's the last day you're, you know, it's the, the, the Hollanders would always say, you know, the cow smell the barn. And it's just like, yeah, time yeah, to come. Yeah. I want to get to the barn. Yeah, and, yeah. and this is the moment that God says, you know, it's like, is there anything in conclusion? Uh, yeah, I'm about to derail your life. Yeah, that that is what happened. There was no, there was no floral language left. There was no sort of visionary sensibilities. I was all prayed out, really. Yeah. I was just glad to quit. I was just glad to quit. And that's why, actually, although interestingly for me, do you remember I talked about the charismatic movement? Yes, yes. The weird thing, the weird thing for me about orthodoxy and specifically the divine liturgy is the divine liturgy has a way of landing the Holy Spirit mm. in a way I remember from 40 years ago, mm. but without quite the sort of drama in the room yeah. that could actually be very, very rattling and could feel extremely unsafe, actually. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it, it, it's it's a very mature landing board. Yeah. However, there are times, you know, my reading as a Christian is extremely Catholic. I love people like William. I read William Barclay all the time. Uh, I grew up with, it would have been, you know, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spurgeon, yeah. you know, heavy, heavyweights. Yeah. Um, however, however, so in other words, there's, I, I want to actually encourage anybody that isn't a Christian that might be watching this is that is that orthodoxy uh, comes with liturgical prayers and it comes with tradition and it comes with all sorts of things wrapped around it but there are also going to be moments where you will just be alone in the wilderness saying help yeah. and you don't need to lobby for Christ's attention yeah. you don't yeah. need to go to the saint behind the saint behind the saint go direct I have to say it. Yeah. No, I, that's that's right. That's right. The the, the James Scop is um, he taught he taught English at Dort University. Retired. Um, I wrote a book. Had me out of the blue. He contacts me. Says I want you to write a blurb for my book. It's like barely knew the man. Uh, sends me this book. It's a he, he wrote a small book which is a biography of Mother Teresa. And I start reading the book and it's like, I mean, all I knew, I'm not Catholic, so I don't pay any attention to Mother Teresa. You just hear her on the news because everybody in the world, oh, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, everybody knows her name, you know, because she did, you know, help homeless in Calcutta, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he he read through her journals because after her death, this stuff was available and discovers that, you know, she she lived this life of of great service, but internally of tremendous torment because she thought that Christ had abandoned her. And she thought that Christ had turned his back on her. And, um, and, and it's, and it's just, I mean, I, I see people, I see people run out of the church because, you know, their latest love interest, you know, found somebody else. And I think that that's, that's it. I realize at a young age, it's a big deal, but that's it. And you look at this woman who, you know, lives her life in, in complete service and dedication to her Lord that, that she honestly believes 
isn't giving her the time of day. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy thing, but it's a true thing. And, um, and Christ, Christ is alive and he does what he wants. And, you know, I think the heart of the faith is trusting, you know, it's, it's, it's just trusting that whatever he leads you to, or whatever he leads you through, it will be right and it yeah. will be good, but it might be hard and it, and it might be costly. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like Jonah a lot of the time with the seaweed wrapped around my head, <laughs> you know, trying to overhear, you know, I just think this is an incredible time to be alive. Yeah. This is so mythological, the moment that we're in. Yeah. I mean, what do we do? You know, the, these enormous questions about AI and technology, I've grew since 1972, I've grown up, well, I was born in 71, actually. I've grown up with Christians telling me that technology is luciferic. This is not news. This can't be news to you. It can't be. You know, we're like, oh, we're here again. We're here again. And yet here we are doing beautiful things with technology that may not have our best interests at heart. What a radical thing to do. It's wonderful. We come out of it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your voc- your vocation now, because you've had this change. Um, Christ has found you, uh, <laughs> and he he's put you in. I mean, and and also to me too. I mean, when I started this YouTube thing, you know, I start I make a video about Jordan Peterson, and people are like, "You should talk to Jonathan Peugeot." Like, well, I yeah. don't know who he is. Well, he's an icon carver, and I thought, a "What?" <laughs> I thought, "Wait a minute." I'm a I'm a Christian reformed minister. This is an iconoclastic tradition, and I have to become friends with an icon carver. And mm-hmm. and and so then of course Jonathan and I become friends to the bit that we can. And I mean it and so and so then suddenly I am, you know, I'm I'm a pastor of a church and I'm still a pastor of the church, but the church is dying. And you know, then people are like, oh, but now you're famous on YouTube, so your church should be full. And it's like, no, it doesn't really work that way. And, um, but so what's, so this, you're doing these, 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 not these retreats, but these attacks with people, um, you're, you're still teaching and you're still writing how, because you were doing a lot of this before. And so how has this turn changed your vocation? Well, uh, I think in in some regards, to use a very old fashioned phrase, I've been a soul doctor for a long time. Mm. You know, I've worked a lot with at risk youth and returning veterans. I've been down in the coalface a lot. Um, the 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 workings of, of of Christ on me are best encountered i have to say in the substack that i write that's where the Mm. action is happening i'm writing a book for penguin at the moment it'll be out next year with you know uh probably some major visibility to it yeah Uh, so that's coming and that's taking a lot of time um so i have a school that is 20 years old i have seven i take 70 students a year from all over the world who come to come to england and they study with me for these long sessions but that is not intrinsically christian although right. my intrinsic christianness can't help but escape yeah yeah but, but it's what's it's, the name of your school 
the school west country school it's a schoolofmyth.com very easy to find schoolofmyth.com uh, i have a summer school as well so students from the states who don't want to come over five times can just come over from a week and i teach however i'm now uh this august for the second time i'm leading something called the peregrini sit which is a Christian vigil in the woods. A peregrini is the old Celtic name for the early Christians. And I love it because peregrini has, it has a, a kind of a long walk in the word and it has a, an animal in the, it has a bird in the word, the peregrini sit. I will also be at the Symbolic World Conference in like six weeks or something like that in Florida, a place I never expected to visit due to, uh, you know, the kind invitation of uh, Jonathan, um so that's probably in america if anybody's interested that's where you're going to see me uh and i will be giving it my very best shot there but it's the most important distressing wonderful thing to have possibly happened to a middle-aged guy you know yeah, yeah. i'm very grateful as i look around the the detritus of my life yeah. you know at the moment uh, so I'll just do what he wants me to do as best I can, you know, yeah. but he's troubling, you know, he's a troubling figure. People often say to me, you know, what does Jesus look like to you? And I'm like, well, he's just a sort of a stick figure in the woods that just keeps telling me off and moving between trees. He's not there like Bee Gees Jesus. He's just not, I don't have that. Ex I don't have that. It's an apophatic experience that I'm yeah. having. A little bit is unknowable to me. And the older I get, I have to be, I have to be at peace with the unknowable. I presided over the funeral of a young child recently. You've you've done things like that. Yeah. You know what it's like. Yeah. You can't be dishing out platitudes no. when a kid no. dies. No. You can't. It's so, it's yeah. It's interesting to me. You're right. We live in we live in really amazing times. One of the one of the things that's become popular are pilgrimages. And, and I remember, you know, that Hollywood picked it up. There was um Martin Sheen, I think, did a did a did a thing on the and then uh I have a friend of mine who uh total new age guy teaches at a local university. He was doing these vision quests, you know, out in the woods and um he did the he did the Camino and John Van Donk who does the estuary thing with me, he did the Camino and then a colleague of mine who was a successful church planner in the Christian Reformed Church planted a church using sort of seeker methodology in suburban Sacramento a few years ago. Had him on my channel once. Um, uh, Parkinson's, you know, he's been stricken with Parkinson's, and he's taken to um, taken to pilgrimage. And I, I just think, what an interesting world it is when Christian Reformed ministers who plant uh, modernist churches wind up on pilgrimage in Europe, walking the Camino. So I would imagine your, your school of myth. It's just so, I mean, again, it's, it is so wild school of myth.com. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's so it's, you know, I, I came into the work that I do now at where there was of my generation, almost nobody was doing it. It was hanging by a thread. Yeah. Um, I would have known Kings North because, I mean, Paul and I have known each other for a decade. Although we, this will sound extraordinary because of what has now come to light, but our, 
our actual conversion experiences were almost hidden from each other. You really? know, we we knew we both knew something was going on in the other camp. Uh, but I didn't speak to him publicly about what was happening to me, which would have been happening at exactly the same time to him. I've never said this before. Uh, wow. We haven't talked about it. And I don't wow. even want to say any more about it. But it's odd, isn't it? And And I feel so... I feel so warmly supported, although I get people trying to kick me in the head and saying he's a warmed over pagan. He doesn't have a Christian bone in his body. Rowan Williams went to bat for me. That's pretty cool. That's, That's cool. Pretty, I, I won't forget that because a lot of, uh, you know, for a lot of Christians, I have the whiff of sulfur about me, but if they knew, if, if they, if they knew what I've actually chucked under the bus in the last few years, they might, you know, they change their ideas. Uh, I don't. It, I don't yeah. smell any sulfur around you, Martin. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. Well, I don't. I don't know. Again, if there's anything else you'd like to bring in, or anything you'd like to ask me, um, uh, I just want to. I just want to confirm you in what you're doing. I think it's so fantastic and endlessly engaging, and such a again this notion that all technology is essentially corrupt and leading to a bad end. Well, no one is going to be chucking their iPhones in the river anytime soon, not on any great level. The die is set. This yeah. is where it's heading. Yeah. Therefore, when I see you and I see Nate and I see Jonathan and others, you know, doing this Aikido move with it, yeah. moving beauty around the place, touching yeah. people's heart, I'm, I'm energized, I'm touched, and I want to go back to work. And I just thank you for that. Wow. Well. Well, thank you very much. That's I, I will tell you, when I had two thousand subscribers, I I seriously thought of just shutting the whole thing down because I said I don't I I I don't need this. I don't need I don't need. You know, I saw what happened to Jordan Peterson. I said I really don't want that. You know, I I just wanted a few people to talk to about what I saw going on. I didn't I didn't want to necessarily start anything. And um, but God has um. God has used it and he's been good and um we'll 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 continue to trust him even if sometimes we question his sanity. So wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you, Martin. This has been a delight.